After this, Jesus went to Jerusalem for a religious festival. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool with five porches. In Hebrew, it is called Besatha. A large crowd of sick people were lying on the porches. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. A man was there who had been sick for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there, and he knew that the man had been sick for such a long time. Do you want to get well? Sir, I don't have anyone here to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. While I'm trying to get in, somebody else gets there first. Get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Immediately, the man got well. He picked up his mat and started walking. The day this happened was a Sabbath, so the Jewish authorities told the man who had been healed, this is a Sabbath, and it is against our law for you to carry your mat. The man who made me well told me to pick up my mat and walk. Who is the man who told you to do this? But the man who had been healed did not know who Jesus was. For there was a crowd in that place, and Jesus had slipped away. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple. You're well now. So stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Then the man left and told the Jewish authorities that it was Jesus who had healed him. So they began to persecute Jesus because he had done this healing on a Sabbath. Jesus answered them, My father is always working. And I too must work. This saying made the Jewish authorities all the more determined to kill him. Not only had he broken the Sabbath law, but he had said that God was his own father, and in this way had made himself equal with God. After a week away, we're jumping back into our our series we've been looking at, John's Questions for Life, we've been examining life's most important questions asked by Jesus and of Jesus in his good friend John's account of his life. And today we're given the scene of Jesus looking compassionately into the eyes of a man who spent 38 years without the use of his legs. And he asks this man, do you want to be healed? And no doubt this man wants his legs to work again. I mean, who wouldn't? But the real question becomes apparent. I think you see as the story goes on, does he want more than that? Does he want more than just his legs healed? During our time, our family's time, uh, living in the Cayman Islands for nine years, a friend in the church, uh, a friend in our church named Lorne, uh, was having an inspector and a contractor check out something that was wrong with his home. Uh, he was in an older home, 
uh, that was con constructed mostly of wood, which is unusual in the humid uh, Caribbean climate where most things are, are, are made of something more, more solid, stone, uh, et cetera, uh, concrete. Uh, the inspector checked out a problem area just outside sort of the guest bedroom and determined there was dry rot both on the outside but also inside the walls in his guest bedroom. And the contractor approached my friend and said, hey, we can, just, we can fix the dry rot in this room. He said, however, because of this particular type of wood in this climate, you're looking at the need to make bigger changes. Now, it's probably 20, 30 years down the line, but you're going to need it. So my friend Lorne sits there, right? He mulls it over. He starts to, to weigh the cost in his mind of, of how much expense this is going to be, as well as uh, what it's going to cost his life and, and, and lifestyle, right? He was going to have to, to move out and, and live somewhere else for a period of time while this got repaired, which is something, by the way, that just dawned on me as I was thinking about this story this week, that the reason he was telling me that is he may have been dropping a hint that he wanted to actually live with us during this time. It's good to, good to know that about me. I don't take hints really well. Uh, you need to be very direct with me. Uh, Anyway, the next day, the, the contractor uh, shows up at his house. He says, okay, what's it going to be? A little or the whole thing? What are we going to do? A little or the whole thing? And that, I think, is the question for the man in this story and the question for each of us this morning. It's the question behind the question in a nutshell. A little or the whole thing? Do you want Jesus for a little healing or for the whole thing? to heal the part of you with which you're dissatisfied, that doesn't function like it should, that you're convinced, 100% convinced, if I can just get a quick fix for this, then my life will really get back on course. Or take it down to the studs for a whole person renovation. Which of those two options? It's a difference between Jesus as your healer and Jesus as your savior. It's a difference we're going to see in our story this morning with the real-life persons in our story, uh, a 38-year invalid, the religious leaders, and, of course, Jesus. We begin with this invalid man in the community pool that he frequents. All right, so every once in a while, uh, the historical science of archaeology sheds light on things that, that help make sense of it, things we might otherwise miss for example, uh, where the lost ark is located, uh, the temple of doom, uh, the location of the holy grail, even dinosaurs that can be recreated through dino DNA and blood, and the blood of mosquitoes trapped in fossilized tree sap. All these are discoveries I've learned through archaeology, um, some of which have been made into feature films, by the way, that you can watch. So, but I take it as truth and real. Anyway... <laughs> Some of, that, some of that was lost on some of you. That's okay. It's possible, it's possible the pool in our story was a Jewish ceremonial uh, water cleansing facility called a uh, mikvah, but it's more likely it's the Jerusalem Asclepion. Say that with me, Asclepion. Ready? Asclepion. It's fun to say, right? Asclepion. Well, archaeologists date a recently discovered Asclepion near the Sheep Gate, mentioned here in the first couple verses. Near the Sheep Gate, they, they date it to centuries after Jesus, but it was built on the foundation of a previous Asclepion. 
And if you've ever visited um, Israel, the Holy Land, uh, got to go a couple years ago, it's amazing. One of the things you realize, especially in Jerusalem, is that everything you see is actually built on something else. Like, so when you're walking in the old city of Jerusalem, you're in Jerusalem, yes, but actually the Jerusalem Jesus walked is like 20, at least 20, 30, 40 feet deeper. Everything's built on something else. And so when you see this Jewish Asclepion, this, this place, it means that there was a previous one beneath it, and they can see remains of that as well. Why am I mentioning this? What's the deal with Asclepions? Why am I talking to you about it? Well, Asclepions were the healing centers dedicated to the Greco-Roman god of well-being and health, Asclepius. He's not one of the more famous Greek-Roman gods, but he's pretty important. There are more than 400 healing centers, Asclepions, throughout the empire. So clearly they'd been franchised out. Right? Franchised out, they were very influential. They merely made a difference in people's lives, or so they thought. Asclepius' daughters, Hygieia and Panacea, were the mythical goddesses responsible for delivering good, what do you think, hygiene and curative coverall panaceas to those who were in need of healing. You may be familiar with the symbol for modern medicine today. You see that up here? That is the rod of Asclepius, believe it or not. Not a lot of people know that. You see it, right, on uh, EMS trucks. You see it at hospitals. The rod of Asclepius, because snakes were his official symbol. That was his deal. Uh, he liked them. So they've had a tremendous influence for today. They were kind of, it's kind of the beginning, what we think of as modern medicine. I'm telling you this story because an archaeological, archaeological discovery makes it likely this Jewish man in our story was seeking healing from a pagan god at his day spa, right? In other words, kind of like our modern approach to healing, right? Whatever works, right? You try to do the right thing. You try to do it well, in the end. Whatever works. Indeed, Jesus connects this man's sin of trusting a pagan God, trusting a pagan God instead of the God of Israel, to his ailment, to his disease. Verse 14, right? He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He's making a clear link between his sin and what happened to his legs. And I want to be clear Not all sickness is connected to a specific sin in our lives. And we'll see Jesus make this very clear in John chapter 9 later on. But this story also tells us something else, that sometimes there is a connection. Sometimes there is. I want to encourage you, be slow to ever say this to someone else. There's a connection between a sickness and sin, and their specific sin. But what I want you to do is at least keep it in the back of your mind for yourselves so that you may not miss the opportunity if you're sick or you're hurting, to confess sin. And perhaps, perhaps as a result, God might heal you as you confess that sin. It is possible. But back here to our story in John chapter 5, this man's story is a tragedy. This particular man's story is a tragedy. We see the healing and we think, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a happy ending, but really it's a tragedy. He's so singularly focused on getting one thing fixed in his life that he misses Jesus. And we get it, right? We get it. This man hasn't been able to use his legs for 38 years. Of course he's focused on that. But he's so singularly focused on it that he misses Jesus entirely. In verse 7, he doesn't actually answer Jesus' question, does he? Jesus says, do you want to be healed? He doesn't respond to that question. He assumes Jesus knows the whole purpose of the pool. 
And why he's there every day to try to get in it. And in fact, he says, hey, this pool here, that this is my hope. And the only problem is that no one's helping me get into it. In verse 11, the man blames the person who healed him. He says basically to the religious leader, hey, it's not my fault I'm disobeying your religious laws. The man who healed me, blame him. It's his fault. Blame the man who healed me. Verse, verse 13, we find out he's never even acquired about the person who healed him, nor even asked his name. And if I'm able, unable to use my legs for 38 years and I've tried everything to heal myself, and you come forward and you immediately heal my legs, listen, I'm going to want to know your name. <laughs> like, and just what's your deal? What's your deal? Like, how, how, did, you, how did you do this? I mean, really, How? But nothing. Verse 15, after he finally finds out Jesus' name, he goes straight to the religious leaders, leaders to rat him out, to rat Jesus out. So we can summarize this man's relationship to Jesus like this. He's an answer to prayer for a return to normal. That's all Jesus is to this man, an answer to prayer for a return to normal. People commonly call this bargaining it's a scenario which many of us have experienced, right? God, if, if you just answer my prayer, if you get me out of this situation, if you help me here, I'll serve you forever and finally start going to church, right? At one point, some of us may have prayed that prayer, all right? But most people who've prayed that prayer aren't here, right? Because we know the dark humor behind the story is that you pray that prayer, God may answer it, and you don't end up following through for very long. It's like you don't really stick around. Side note, God loves to answer prayers of people he knows won't follow through with their end of the bargain. He loves to. Why? Simply because it's in his nature. He loves to bless people. He loves to give gifts to people and show grace to them. And so he does, even knowing they won't respond. That's the kind of God he is. even though he knows they're going to go back to the normal life, which is what this invalid man does. He returns to normal immediately. He cowers to the religious establishment. And he rats out Jesus to them because he wants to be part of, accepted by the dominant culture from which he's been so long absent. He can finally fit in again. He can finally be part of it again. Even though they never bothered to help him, they never bothered to lend him a hand. He just wants to fit in again. And maybe you see a little of yourself in this man. A little of Jesus answers my prayer. A little of Jesus provides me that quick fix I need so that I can get back to normal life, to the way things were. Maybe that's something to which you can relate. The Pharisees in our story, a.k.a. the religious leaders, a.k.a. the Jews, John often uses that term. Our author, John, uses the Jews to refer to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees. They are typecast simply as the bad guys of the gospel. When in reality, their original aim was pretty noble to people like you and me, which was to practically apply ancient laws to modern life. That was their desire, after all. And, and we would think that is noble, right? Because we love practical we want to go to practical churches. We want to hear practical messages that relate to our lives. The Pharisees were practical to the nth degree. 
One example was applying one of the Ten Commandments, that commandment of resting on the seventh day of every week, which was known as the Sabbath. And they wanted to make that practical, like how will we rest? How will we rest from our work? And so what they did is they parsed out that command of resting on that day into 39 classes of work. Class, one of which was not taking your bed, one's mat or bed, on God's day of rest. Now think of how ironic that is. You cannot carry around the thing on which you rested on the day of rest. Right? So like, <laughs> it prevented you from resting, technically. A dear friend of mine who used to uh, regularly work um, media in our old church, he was this uber practical, pragmatic, pragmatic guy in everything he did which probably made him very, which is why he was very good at investing and raising capital, which he did. And yeah, I said to him, I remember before one particular church service, I was like, hey man, got an Old Testament coming at you this morning. You're going to love it. Old Testament sermon. He said, hey man, you know my motto. Just tell me exactly what I need to do and I'll do it. That was his motto as a follower of Jesus. Just tell me what I need to do in following Jesus and I'll do it. But we know that does not produce a heart full of trust in God and love for neighbor. Being told what to do, running down a checklist, it doesn't produce in us a heart full of trust and a love for our neighbor. In fact, uber, uber practicality usually devolves into a transactional relationship, doesn't it? Okay, God, I do this for you. You bless me with this. You bless me with this. I do this for you and back and forth. And a transactional relationship is exactly what the religious leaders want out of Jesus. Jesus, we can incorporate you. We can bring you in. We can incorporate you into our regularly scheduled program already in progress if you would just get on board with our Sabbath-keeping application. All right, you get on board with this, we'll bring you into this. And when Jesus doesn't, they not only reject him, but they do so with violent intentions, we're told. Many of us are okay with a little Jesus as long as he fits into my regularly scheduled program already in progress. As long as he gets on board with what I'm doing and what I'm about, Jesus and I will get along. Now, friends, they might, that, might result, that might result in a decent match.com date but it makes for a weak God, a weak God. I mean, think about it. Can God really be God if he agrees entirely with your program, right? Wouldn't that just make him a version of you? <laughs> I think about that sometimes. And we say things like, well, that, that's not my God. because He doesn't agree fully with that. It's easy to get on board with God's radical plan of coming down off a heavenly throne, right, inhabiting the flesh and experience all of what it means to be human in Jesus Christ. We're down with that. We're attracted to his program of self-giving love expressed supremely through the cross of Christ. We love that. But he also says some other things in his program. He says some hard things about marrying someone who doesn't love Jesus as you do. He says a hard word about sexual intimacy outside of marriage or between two people of the same gender. He, he delivers almost impossible-sounding expectations about turning the other cheek and forgiving, forgiving the most vile of people 
that is part of his program too. And it's all stuff that seems out of place, inconsistent with, with the narratives in which most of us happily live. And me too. It is hard for me to hear some of the things that are part of God's program. It grates against the flow of my life. And yet wouldn't you respect God far less if he simply agreed with everything in your program? Think about that for your life. I think about it also as I hear these religious leaders wanting Jesus to fit into their program. I think about the church at large. Are we not guilty of trying to fit Jesus into our program in the church instead of hopping on board his? I'm going to give you some quick dates, just for example here. Uh, Sunday school. The idea of Sunday school started in the uh, 1780s in England as a way to provide education to working children uh, who weren't subject to labor laws. The idea of small groups, there's some different theories of this, but likely started in 1946 at the Church of the Savior, 1946 in Washington, D.C., right, as a, way to, as a departure from, from purely knowledge-based ways of discipleship through, through Bible study and Sunday school, more relational ways of trying to follow Jesus and discipleship. These are temporary passing programs through which God has worked, but they're not sac- sacrosanct. They're not sacrosanct. They, they had pretty recent beginnings, actually, in the grand scope of God's history, They have come, but they too shall pass. But sometimes we treat them as, oh, you don't have those things? You don't have this in your church? You don't have that in your church? Man. In fact, when I look at God's program in the early church, at his way of doing things, the summary of them in places like Acts 2, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, here are the consistent elements I see in the book of Acts repeated over and over again. Bible reading, fellowship, eating together in homes, praying for one another, sharing their stuff, and having favor with all the people such that some of them were added to their number every day. Share that again. Bible reading fellowship, eating together in one another's homes, praying for one another, sharing their stuff, and enjoying the favor of the city around them such that people were added to their number every day. Where do all of those elements show up in one of our church programs? They don't. Some get close, but they don't. At least not yet. Stay tuned, BCC. All right, Jesus, let's talk about Jesus a little bit. Jesus speaks uh, only four lines in this passage. He doesn't have a lot to say, but each line, each, each of his lines is an invitation for whole person renovation. Not to fix a little thing, but to fix all of us. Jesus reaches out with invitations to this invalid man in verses 6, 8, and 14. Verse 6, of course, we've already read, do you want to be healed? But this man can't see past the Asclepion for healing. In his mind, it's Asclepion or bust. That's it. Either this, this part medicinal part magical waters are going to heal him or nothing will. Verse 8, get up, take your mat and walk. Another invitation. And this man does get up and walk, but he walks right past Jesus, missing him entirely. Verse 14, sin no more. What an outrageous, incredibly outrageous invitation this is. Looks at a man, his third opportunity, his third invitation, he looks at him and he says, sin no more. 
It's outrageous because any reflective person knows sinning no more is impossible. If you say to someone who actually thinks about their life, hey, sin no more, <laughs> what would you say? You're insane, right? Sinning is expressed through loving things more than God, loving ourselves more than neighbor. That's what I do mostly in my life, <laughs> is love things more than God and self more than neighbor, sadly. I've tried on my own to do those things. You know, to love God without, and to, to, to love my neighbor as myself, and it doesn't work. Do you ever wonder why Jesus often teaches in parables? He, always, he often teaches in these parables. Sometimes they often sound like riddles, but they're parables. He does it because he's inviting people to inquire within. He's inviting people to come to him and ask more. His disciples sometimes take advantage of that. They say, Jesus, what are you talking about here? And that's when he breaks it down for them. He's inviting people to ask how, like, how do I become that sort of person? And who are you, Jesus, dear, to be able to transform me? He does this because he knows the human heart. He knows that we, for, for something to last, we need to step towards him on our own. To step towards him on our own, not because someone pressures us into raising their hand to say yes to Jesus, not because someone pressures us to pray a prayer, but to step out on our own. And that's what Jesus does. He leaves the good news out for us. He leaves it there, and then we can step forward and say yes to it and make it our own. And the good news is that he offers to any person who sees their need ongoing, whole person renovation. He makes this invitation to people. Verse 17, my father is working now, and I am working it even has the language of a renovation. In, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis encourages uh, his readers towards a thought exercise that we should maybe think about as well. Imagine yourself as a living house, he says, and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first you get it, he says, you know, he starts to fix up some of the drains, repair the leaks in the roof, things you would notice and, and want changing. But then he starts about the house in ways that hurt, don't even seem to make sense. Lewis explains, quote, he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live it in it, live in it himself. Some of you hear that this morning and you think, yes, that is what I want. That is what I need. And if that resonates with you, I'm going to encourage you to consider that as an invitation from Jesus to you. And you hear, yeah, new wings, a palace. I've been thinking cottage. God has been thinking a mansion. That's his invitation to you. What specifically does Jesus renovate? And what does he leave intact? Well, the answer is I don't know. It's different for every person. But two precious promises come to mind as I think about this. The first is from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And Jesus says that we all, with unveiled face, any person who trusts Jesus is able to see him and interact with him face to face, directly in a relationship. We all unveil faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. 
Every day you relate to Jesus, you're being transformed one degree, one degree, one degree. And isn't that an encouragement? Another precious promise, Philippians 1, 6, that the God who began a good work in you will see it to completion. He will. It's guaranteed to get it done right. So his renovation is ongoing, consistent, happens often without us noticing. And it's guaranteed to get done and get done right. There's another thing I know from experience. He doesn't permanently remove parts of us, um, the best parts of us. He doesn't permanently remove the best parts of us. He gives them back to us restored. So, for example, I'm competitive, but then I trusted Jesus. So I was competitive without my temper. No more thrown rackets, no more broken eight irons. <laughs> I'm competitive still, but without my temper. It only happened once. All right. Um, I derive joy from laughing with people, no longer at them. I use words now to persuade people with truth towards a greater hope, no longer to manipulate my parents and BS others. All right, which is how I use my words. That's what Jesus does, takes the best parts of that us and, and transforms those two. As I close, I just want to point out one last thing about verse 17 that I think is important, where Jesus says, my father is working now and I am working. He answered the Pharisees in this way. And when he says this, it seems like Jesus is fighting back against the religious leaders, fighting them, but he's actually not. Up until Jesus' birth, the most influential rabbis of, uh, in Jerusalem at that time debated the issue around the Sabbath, a specific issue. Did God himself work on the Sabbath or did he not? Imagine, it may sound small to you, but it was a big commandment for these people. Did God work on the day of rest or did he not? Think about it. Did God obey his own command or does he actually keep the world spinning on a day of rest? It's a big deal, right? Does God disobey his command, or is he not in charge one day of the universe? Hmm. Well, by the time Jesus is speaking here, the leading rabbis of the day had all agreed, and it's published material, I mean, that God keeps working on the Sabbath day. So when Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now, he's actually finding common ground with the religious leaders. He's trying to say, hey, we agree. The father is always at work. And he's inviting them to consider a new possibility. I, too, am at work. I, too, am at work. In other words, Jesus is not fighting them. He's inviting them. Though their hearts had, been, had become darkened by this singular obsession with their program, their way of doing things, so much so that they'd kill for it, Jesus holds out an invitation to them because no one, no one is beyond his whole person, renovation. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that even for those of us who consider ourselves to be vile, like the religious leaders and the bad guys of the story, that even we are not beyond your invitation to be made new. We miss that. Sometimes we, we miss that Jesus loved even the most vile people in this story and offer to them the good news of renovation through himself. Jesus, I pray that people here this morning, none of us would miss this invitation, like the, blind, or sorry, like the lame man did, like the invalid man did. 
It's a tragic story that he misses all the ways Jesus says, but don't you want more? Don't you want a greater healing to yourself? And he misses it. May we not miss it, Lord Jesus. May we instead take that step of faith and say yes to you, Jesus, this morning. Say yes to a whole person, new creation, new life, as a son and daughter of the living God. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.